Hello, I'm Maria Ramper, and welcome to our Season 3 wrap-up episode of Engineering Reimagined. As the curtain begins to close on what has been another challenging year for many of us, we look forward to taking a break and safely reconnecting with family and friends, as far as the COVID-19 pandemic allows, of course. Throughout 2021, we have focused on continuing to bring you the stories of fascinating people and industry-leading innovation to help you navigate the changing and uncertain environment in which we find ourselves and to inspire you to grasp the opportunities that disruption provides. Whether that's exploring renewable energy alternatives, the nature of startups, the rise of 20-minute neighbourhoods, or how design thinking can democratise innovation, we hope you've enjoyed and learned something new from listening in. For more information about our guests and to listen back to full episodes from any of our three seasons of Engineering Reimagined, head to our website, oricongroup.com, or find us on your favourite podcasting app. In our final episode this year, we take a look at some of the incredible problem solvers, innovators and leaders who have been our guests throughout Season 3. Firstly, let's retrace our steps to one of the most fascinating conversations we've ever featured, when Evelyn Storey, Oricon's Managing Director in Queensland, joined the Queensland Brain Institute's Associate Professor Bruno van Swindren to discuss the links between sleep, consciousness and creativity. You've mentioned a few times that the relationship between sleep and consciousness and attention, and you also research those areas. What is the link between sleep and in your research in these areas? Yeah, I mean, the link between sleep and consciousness is a tricky question in a way, because clearly sleep is required for maintaining a healthy brain. And a brain is what supports consciousness, at least for humans, but we're thinking for most animals as well. And here we've proposed a, a hypothesis in the lab. And that's specifically that sleep maintains a capacity for consciousness, especially REM sleep, so dream sleep. And um, what I mean by that is that what our brain really wants to do is, is to predict the world, right? That's what the brain is for. It wants to be able to predict what happens next and make sure that we make good predictions about the world. But to do that too well makes you risk becoming a robot and becoming a habit-driven animal. So the way we drive a car and not notice that we've driven for 10 miles that's in a way a reflection of the brain wanting us to become a habit-driven animal, you know, a prediction machine. And one idea is that the function of REM sleep, of when we dream and go into the stage of sleep where the brain's awake, but put into a virtual reality in a way, is that it maintains our capacity for detecting prediction errors and surprise. It gives us kind of a, a capacity to respond to the world in a fresh way with surprise, which is what consciousness really is. When we're aware of something that's changed, there's something new that happened. So one idea is that REM sleep, so when we dream, really curates a capacity to respond to the world with surprise, thereby allowing you to be conscious. And this is a, in a tantalizing hypothesis. If you took REM sleep away completely, maybe you'd become unconscious. You'd become an automaton. So this, this battle between deep sleep to just really fix the brain and crystallize habits, do everything with a, a minimal amount of uh, energy is kind of counterbalanced with dream sleep or REM sleep, which is the brain saying, hey, I don't want to be a robot because it's not adaptive to be a robot. We've known through evolution 
that if you respond with curiosity, creativity, and surprise, that you're actually a more adaptive creature, that you actually survive better. That's so interesting because I think in the engineering profession, what's so important to us is that balance of technical thinking and some element of routine, but also creativity and innovation. So I think you're telling us we, we really do need to make sure we're getting a good night's sleep in order to perform optimally. Exactly. And that's where there's been a lot of misinformation in the media and how we think about sleep, especially because there's this idea that deep sleep is the good sleep and the only kind of sleep we need. And indeed, when we take sleeping pills, that typically puts you straight into deep sleep stage. And what it tends to do is um, prevent a normal amount of REM sleep, of dream sleep. So you might be getting deep sleep functions, but you're not getting REM sleep functions. And um, it's a bit concerning that so many people take sleeping pills and that there's not this awareness that it's not one pill that's going to do the job. We really need some kind of um, regime of pills in a way, <laughs> if we were going to use pills, to balance the kinds of sleep we need in exactly the rhythm that the brain wants it to happen, right? That's 90-minute cycle. And the key here, in a way, is that the brain, in general, knows how much sleep it needs, right? So you'll, you get the sleep that basically you need. So if somebody sleeps eight hours, they need eight hours. Some people need six hours or five hours. That's all they need. And typically, that works. You don't have to fix it. And that's often coupled to a lot of anxiety of people feeling that they don't get enough sleep, and then taking medications and then somehow compounding those anxieties over time. So you mentioned sleeping pills just then and conscious numbing effect of those. Is the same thing happening with anesthetic when we have a medical procedure? There's some confusion about the link between anesthesia and, and sleep. In general, in the past, it was thought that general anesthesia was really a kind of only a sleep process. Typically, those drugs will first put you into deep sleep stage. Interestingly, they don't necessarily absolve you of sleep needs. So typically when people wake up from general anesthesia, especially an extended procedure, they need to recover some sleep. It's not like it took care of their sleep. And that's because it has to do with the presynaptic mechanisms of affecting neurotransmission that basically prevents your brain from working normally. So it's not helping any sleep at all. The other drug that most people are more likely to have than a general anesthesia <laughs> is alcohol. So when people consume alcohol, especially if they consume too much of it, that also will put them into a deep sleep stage. And you see increased delta activity in their brain. But the net consequence of that is that you actually have less REM sleep after a night of drinking. So you typically go into deep sleep and then a bit of light sleep afterwards, kind of like fragmented light sleep, and not that much dream or REM sleep. And that's interesting in a way because we know that REM sleep is important for emotional regulation. And anybody who's had too much to drink or who knows uh, an alcoholic knows that you can't say that their emotions are well-regulated. <laughs> and um, that's clearly a consequence of uh, consuming too much alcohol. Poorly regulated emotions, uh, irritability. And that's not necessarily only related to having a headache, but the fact that you may not have had enough REM sleep. You've mentioned a few times how you're using insects to help you with your research. And as an engineers, we're very familiar with the use of models, um, virtual models or, or other models to test and iterate our designs. How did you come to the point where you're using insects to help you in your models and in your research? That's an interesting question for sleep because originally the idea with using flies, Drosophila melanogaster is the insect we use, the workhorse of genetics, you know, the source of many Nobel Prizes in medicine as a way to discover fundamental biological mechanisms and, for example, circadian rhythms, genetics. The original idea was that because it was a fly and had a tiny brain of about 100,000 neurons, that sleep would be a simpler problem 
to study in it, that it would be a unitary thing, just one phenomenon. The flies fall asleep, they achieve sleep function, they wake up, and then we can study that. And we've since found that, um, no, it's, uh, sleep is just as complicated in the smallest animal brains. So they also have deep sleep. They also have something akin to active sleep, we call it. I'm not going to call it REM sleep because they don't have rapid eye movement. They don't have eyes that move rapidly. <laughs> they don't have eyelids. But they also have uh, these kind of alternations between one kind of sleep and another kind of sleep. And so their sleep is just as complicated. The value of the fly and of doing work in Drosophila melanogaster is that we have all these genetic tools to be able to, as you say, iterate to finding how something works. So we can turn off one set of neurons, turn on another set of neurons in real time using light, for example. It's called optogenetics. And in that way, just find out how the sleep mechanism works. As we grappled with our new normal throughout 2021, ongoing global issues such as how to tackle climate change continued to be discussed at gatherings like the United Nations Climate Change Conference, more commonly known as COP26. Held in Glasgow, world leaders spent days considering how to transition away from fossil fuels and scale up the use of renewable energy worldwide. Australia is uniquely positioned to be a world leader in the development and distribution of renewable energies. And when John Chambers, Executive General Manager, Future Business and Technology at AGL, spoke with Ben McGarry, Oricon's Capability Leader, Future Energy, they discussed the advantages Australia has as a nation in the renewable energy sector. Can I ask, one thing you mentioned there that was interesting was the idea of lasting value being in entrepreneurship rather than in maybe the continued monetization of, of infrastructure. And I wonder if there's some lessons you carry over from the telco space in terms of stranded assets and disruption of or erosion of business cases for infrastructure that might have been designed and built for one purpose, but very rapidly gets disrupted. And then leaves you with the question of, do you let that die as a stranded asset? Or do you try and hold on for dear life to maintain the relevance of that asset base in a future world? Do you try and change the future so that your infrastructure yeah. is still relevant? Yeah, there's multiple layers. One, I think they'll, for a long time, remain the infrastructure investment layer. And, and to a degree, Google and, and Amazon are creating new forms of infrastructure. But there's there's always a need for national and global infrastructure that has generally infrastructure type returns that people can build stuff on. And I think the challenge for a telco or an energy company is traditionally we got to not just be infrastructure, but also product and go all the way to the customer and build beautiful end to end experiences and make some EBITDA from that. And then the last 10 to 20 years, we've got really cranky because these big global smart digital players have come in and seem to be extracting all the value from the customer on top of the infrastructure layer. And we're on a call just before this with a lady who used to work at Census and the journey they went from going, how could we have gone from owning the customer relationship and being worth $10 billion to not and being worth $500 million in six years? Because basically that whole Google came and abstracted that whole customer engagement away from them, but they just kept on not accepting the reality of what was happening. And I think that's what's happening now in so many industries, telco, energy and others. So the question is, what does the future look like and what is the role of a corporate in the future, do we want to be an infrastructure player? And there is absolutely a role for infrastructure player. Look at Telstra. They're focused on 5G, building out an infrastructure layer about 5G, and they'll continue to make returns on that because only three people in this country have a carrier license. 
Google are not going to have one anytime soon. Startups are not going to have one anytime soon. Someone needs to have a carrier license, build a national network that people can come do cool stuff on. Will Telstra do really cool stuff with 5G? Will they be the ones who bring, you know, amazing experiences of VR to life that you're using 5G and own the end-to-end value stack? Who knows? I don't think I'd bet on it, but they're going to have an infrastructure play. Same thing as the challenge for energy. People need to own big, big assets, but infrastructure assets get infrastructure type returns. We're not used to infrastructure type returns. We're used to higher multiple returns because we've owned fully integrated assets and customer experiences. And we've got to work out who we are as we go forward. That's really interesting. The idea that you sort of had a blended EBITDA that reflected a full gamut of value, whereas now you're going to have to be a lot more granular and understand the differential returns that come from different layers. And when you mentioned Google, it reminded me when I was in the US living in Austin, Texas, very progressive city with the utility there being Austin Energy is one of the most progressive utilities in the world. This was 2014, I think. The house I had had a a Nest thermostat. I think this might have been prior to the acquisition. And that was tied into my Austin Energy utility plan. And I was on a program that let them surreptitiously turn my thermostat down for half an hour at a time. And it was a seamless user experience. And it's been an endless source of frustration for me that we're still not there yet in Australia. And I'm interested in you having come in from outside. What is it that's holding us back from adopting these really exciting technologies that seemingly the rest of the world is solving five years, 10 years ahead of us? That's a really, I think, quite interesting use case because I ran Smart Home at Telstra for a while and we, we right. tried to find our version of, of that. Aussies don't like thermostats that do what they <laughs> Aussies like turning, like me, I turn my aircon on when I need it, turn it off when I don't, turn my heating on. If you said to me, set and forget, I'd say, stuff you. I'm controlling my energy usage and I'm no one's doing it for me. And so we, we failed at bringing thermostats into play here and many others have as well. And a whole bunch of things are very different. The whole smart home market in the US, which is 30 or 40% of homes have some kind of smart systems in their homes these days, was built from the fact that 30% of US homes had security because they, they need it. 9% of Australian homes had security and that was falling like a stone. So they were transitioning from dumb security to smart security enabled smart homes. We didn't have a platform to build on it still. And the most smart thing in most Australian homes is a Google Home or an Alexa. And there are these really different conditions well, then you've got what happened with British Gas and Hive in the UK, where they doubled down on smart home, tanked the EBITDA of the company, got the CEO sacked. They tried to double down on tech and it just didn't pay off for them as well. So it's, again, I think they probably felt they had more right to the end-to-end customer experience and to try and make the money that Google makes than, than they did. Whereas Google can afford to invest in Nest and burn cash on that every year because they're making $178 billion in advertising and (laughs) we're up against that. So it's a really, the nature of it though as well is Australia aren't a naturally innovative country, sadly. We're we're learning, but we're a resources country. Our rails are built on resources and financials, not innovation and product. And so we've also got a long way to go to play in that space or doing the right to play in that. Getting there, we've got some early unicorns, but certainly a long way from US or Northern Europe. Do we have opportunities that other countries don't? Yes, we do. Renewables is one. We have an outsized ability to generate power from renewable sources than most other countries. Difficult to export, but it's absolutely a competitive advantage over the rest of the world. And And this is why the conversations with Japan about hydrogen 
are interesting because you go, we're in a world where real electricity has dropped to somewhere around 40 to 50 dollars a kilowatt, kilowatt hour. In Japan, it's 120. We're in a world where we can generate unlimited renewables. They're in a world where they can generate none or close to none. Surely, if we can work out a way to export fuel to that country, there's something in it. And that's where hydrogen becomes fascinating because you go, well, if we can generate it here, export it over there, the price of energy over there makes it potentially palatable. But it's a long journey to be able to generate hydrogen at a cost that makes that economic. Yeah, but the business model sort of makes sense. In renewables, definitely we have an advantage. Unfortunately, it's it's an advantage for ourselves that we're struggling to work out how to get to create export or create a global advantage in. But things like solar, I think, are fascinating. So we're you know we have the highest penetration of solar, forty percent globally, and we're probably much more advanced than most countries. I think that's a little understood fact about Australia is how high our renewables penetration is compared to yeah. other markets. Yeah, and I think you're working to build a range of new technologies to help enhance that renewables penetration, including the largest VPP or virtual power plant. How's that going? What's the latest on that? It's great. It's, it's early, right? The hard part, frankly, the hard part about the energy transition is the disruptions happening now and the big value creation is going to happen in four to 10 years time. So VPP is a great example. We've invested a lot. We've got probably more batteries under management than anyone else in the country, both domestic and and CNI. And we're starting to see the green shoots about how we'll be able to dispatch frequency and, and other things of value into the grid that will make money. Think about it, an average energy company, grid connected customers, let's say they, I'll just pull a number out of there, let's say the, the gross margin on that's 400 bucks. Then they become a solar customer and the gross margin for that customer because of the less use of energy save becomes 200 bucks. And they become a battery customer say it becomes 100 bucks because they're literally just using less energy from us so and becoming self-sufficient. That's a good thing for the consumer. It's a good thing for the environment. It's a terrible thing for the retail energy company. But as a VPP customer, let's say the ability to work with that customer to now become a fully integrated part of the grid to use power when it makes sense to, but also to dispatch power back to the grid when it makes sense to, to the ability for us to slowly shut down plants over the time and use this as the source of our energy generation and storage, not a fixed cost of managing plant. Let's say that $100 of margin to us goes back towards the 400 that we started with because we were able to make all these savings elsewhere by working with this customer as part of the grid. That's a really interesting proposition for a VPP. That's the fundamental premise of the VPP for the energy company. So the question is, how do you rapidly increase the amount of dispatchable storage that we're VPPing with our customers. And that's where EVs become the game because when you've got a household, well, an EV battery being five times the size of a household battery, that's the kind of dispatchable storage you want to have access to as well as obviously CNI storage. That becomes fascinating. Problem is EVs aren't scaling that quick. So this is a, it's a long game. It's the right game for the distributed energy future. And so that's why we're all in now, learning as much as we can because you've got to balance the whole technology of doing that, but you've got to balance the customer experience. It's really complex to explain to a customer, we want to control your battery for some shared value. We can't kind of tell you how much. Just trust us because we're an energy company and you trust us, right? <laughs> Just trust us to orchestrate this battery for you so we both win. That's kind of where the VPP world's at. There's a, a fair way to go in customer experience as well as the technology of, of orchestration to make that the grid of the future. But the beginnings are really good.
it's really interesting you mentioned that because I looked a while back at some work that was looking at the value split of distributed residential storage and the split of value between how much it benefits the homeowner for self-consumption versus tariff reduction versus benefiting the distribution network. And it's quite interesting to start to unpack that and what you're talking about. What I'm hearing is it's incumbent on the retailer or, or the other players in that value chain to try and incentivize the deployment of that resource one way or another so that it does benefit everyone in ways other than just you having to fork out yourselves to deploy it. Because, you know, as we've seen with solar, the homeowners themselves are the ones deploying their own rooftop solar and they're going to be the ones buying their EVs or buying residential storage. It must be a really tricky path to tread. As you say, getting the customer to trust you, their energy provider, that if you hand over the keys, it's in the customer's best interest, particularly when a lot of the messaging is really about self-sufficiency and exactly. going, going off-grid, like I can have my own solar and storage, so yes. I don't even need the retailer to know about me. Yeah, 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 exactly. That's all part of the challenge. And in fact, if you were to step back and say, how do we design the fastest path to everybody being aligned towards net zero, now that I've been in for 10 months, you would actually say it's not radical disruption of the big folks. It's much more collaboration because the big folks want this outcome too, but have shareholders to work with. So if we were all lined up and said, how do we make this transition together? Big energy, consumers, disruptive technology, da -da, it'd be quite a managed process where you're shifting profit pools from big generation sources to distributed generation sources being shared between well-meaning good energy companies and consumers, but in the order, most orderly way possible and really incenting that, that rapid take-up of consumer distributed energy sources. But as you say, it's usually a lot of it, a lot of the early take-up has been, I'm getting off the grid. I can't wait to get away from my energy provider, which kind of means that doesn't necessarily speed up the whole thing. 2021 has been an extraordinary year for the Australian space industry with the ongoing development of one of Australia's first commercial space launch facilities, the Arnhem Space Centre in the Northern Territory, and NASA's commitment to help fund and develop the first Australian-built moon rover. When Louise Adams, Oricon's Chief Operating Officer, met Lynn McDonald, Azure Space Lead at Microsoft, Lynn explained how she had so much faith and confidence in the growing Australian space industry that she moved from the USA to Canberra just to be involved. So you're a former US Air Force Colonel and you've worked for the CIA. So how did you end up moving to Australia to work for Microsoft? First, it's great to have this opportunity to spend this time with you, Louise, and talk to you about a, a topic that I'm very passionate about and have been fortunate enough to spend my career working in. I was in the Air Force for 23 years in Air Force Space Command and U.S. Air Force for all things related to space and satellite operations, space launch. I got a really neat opportunity to go spend a year at the CIA. I was a mid-level captain at the time, so earlier in my career, and I was working for one of the very senior execs at the CIA. <laughs> Looking back, I wish I had gone to that with much more career experience and maturity, but it was definitely a foundational uh, learning experience. I spent quite a bit of time with the National Reconnaissance Office and with other partners in the intelligence community related to space and satellite reconnaissance operations. 
And then, as I mentioned, I retired after 23 years, wanted to see life outside of the Air Force. I lucked out some more and landed with this opportunity with Microsoft. I had taken some time off after the Air Force and uh, was introduced to a U.S. astronaut through a friend of mine. And so definitely not going to turn off the opportunity to have coffee with an astronaut. And I was talking to her about space and partway through, uh, she said, I'd be interested in seeing your resume. At that point, I was carrying my resume in my purse. <laughs> so I promptly handed it to her and she gave me that look like, uh, wow. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and next thing I know, I had a call from the newly hired CTO at Microsoft Azure Global and said, we're going into space. Uh, we're, we're taking our tech to space and looking for industry experts and we'd like to talk. And so I said, that's fantastic. Wow, this is super interesting. Imagine working in the industry with some of the most capable technologies. So I joined Microsoft in January of 2020 and became a part of the newly formed Azure Space team at Microsoft. A number of us came together from, from industry and we all kind of agreed that it was as if we were in a startup backed by a big corporation. So we were just, how can we take our knowledge of the industry and needs of the, the space industry and combine that with the phenomenal technology, compute platform, advanced analytics, all that is cloud capability and bring those worlds together. I started working on some initiatives related to geospatial analytics and space data analytics. And our corporate vice president reached out and said, do you know anyone on Australian space? And I said, yes, <laughs> I do. Contacts from when I was in the Air Force, in Australian defense, a number of friends and other connections in the industry here. In fact, I'd come out here to Australia in 2019 before I had even joined Microsoft. And I attended the space research conference in Adelaide. There was heavy emphasis on research from the Australian universities. And I was completely blown away with the research and the innovation that was coming out of the universities here. So I started working really anything related to Australian space from the US. So I was working with a Microsoft team here and trying to work with the industry from the other side of the planet. Uh, it quickly became apparent that that time zone difference and the opportunity to engage in the industry here were not matched. So I was working with Austrade, uh, the Australian Trade and Investment Commission, and they introduced me to the Global Talent Independent Visa Program. And uh, they said, hey, we want to introduce you to the rep in this program because you're moving to Australia, right? <laughs> I was like, what? No, what? <laughs> I'm sorry, what's it the plan? Quickly. Yeah. It escalated quickly. So they kept pushing and I kept saying, what are you talking about? And other plans, which as we've all learned with all that was 2020, that plans just go right out the window and you learn to, to improvise and create new plans on the fly. So applied for the visa uh, for the global talent program. Two days later, it was approved. So I realized I've got a decision to make. And it was really clear. I was absolutely enjoying the work, super interested in the Australian space industry. And it was just another awesome opportunity. So I packed two bags 
and uh, got a one-way ticket and moved here to Canberra. And here we are. I can hear the passion for this space industry and the opportunities. And I think this is where people really love to talk about space because it is that concept of hope and the future and untapped frontiers. One of my favourite projects that Oricon's been involved with for a number of years now is the Square Kilometre Array project and the largest radio telescope in the world. It's just so mind-boggling to think about being able to look so far into deep space that you're almost looking back in time. So I sort of get a kick out of that project. We can learn so much about what we are today from space. What is it that you love about the space industry? It's such a great point that you really have so much potential to innovate and explore technology. I love space, <laughs> to put it quite simply. I know we're on an audio cast, but even my uh, coffee mug here is, <laughs> has my astronauts and I love space on it. It's truly an industry like so many other high-tech industries where every skill set is needed. Everyone is needed to really bring the industry to its fruition, the space industry. It is highly focused on innovation, technology. It's a move fast industry. I think we're seeing that even more so now in this space 2.0 era of the industry that it really is wherever you or collectively we want to take it. And the thing that I also really love about the industry is this entrepreneurial, highly collaborative spirit. Who wouldn't want to be a part of that? Tell us a little bit about Microsoft for Space Startups Australia. I think you launched it about a month ago or so. What are the goals for this program? When I moved here earlier this year, it really was impressed upon me that we need to invest in and help grow and enable this rapidly evolving industry. So I've looked at that through a variety of different initiatives. And so we have the Microsoft for Startup program, but what we didn't have yet was a Microsoft for Startup program specific to the space industry. How can we take this fantastic program with all these great resources, whether it's cloud compute, access to cloud through credits, access to different development tools, productivity tools, tools that will help businesses in their growing. How can we take this and tailor it to the space industry to invest in these new businesses? We really focused in on the mentorship aspect of the program and developing the program in a way that brings in all of the different subject matter experts across Microsoft and the space experts. So I've got a couple of engineers uh, that have deep expertise in the space industry in Australia, combined with the other engineers on the team and other experts across the board from digital twin, IoT, machine learning, you name it. And we wanted to look at how can we bring all of these subject matter experts together in a way to create this support structure for space startups in Australia to help these companies as they accelerate and grow and innovate. And that brings us to the end of another season. Thank you for joining us once again on Engineering Reimagined. If you're new to the podcast, hit the subscribe or follow button on Apple Podcasts, 
Google Podcasts or Spotify. And don't forget to follow Oricon on your favourite social media platform to stay up to date and join the conversation. Engineering Reimagined will return in early 2022. Until then, we wish you a safe and happy holiday season. Thanks for listening.